evidence and answers. Many question how we should view the Bible. Should we view it as a history book? Or does it explain things scientifically? How do we view science in the scriptures? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, let's tune in as Pat continues with his guest, Dr. Leslie Wickman. Dr. Wickman is a NASA scientist and a firm believer in Jesus Christ, so you won't want to miss it. If you're unable to hear any of this message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now with the conclusion is our host, Pat Zucran. We need to be able to have that freedom of choice, freedom to decide, this freedom to decide whether or not to have faith in God and to, to decide to live according to His plan. Otherwise, we really would be in a way like robots. And, yep. and anyway, so I, I think um, both, like I say, faith and free will are an essential part of this and, and part of this, you know, the inability to to prove God, you know, in an open and shut deductive case is also part of that plan. It, it leaves us with that choice. Now, Leslie, speaking of evidence for the existence of God, you state that the Big Bang is evidence for the existence of God and that Christians should not cringe at this theory. You know, tell us mm-hmm. why. Well, okay, so, you know, just by simple logic of cause and effect, you know, anything that begins to exist must have a cause for its existence. So if the Big Bang signifies a beginning to the universe, then something had to cause beginning of the universe. Something had to cause the universe to come into existence. So like I say, by the simple logic of cause and effect, a beginning needs a beginner, an effect needs a cause. And so if there was a Big Bang creation event, is the way I like to refer to it, then it it says that the universe prior to that event did not exist and something caused it. And, you know, it, to me, it it rings very consistently with Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, according to the Big Bang, I believe it's Einstein's theory of relativity. Time, matter, and energy cannot exist without one another. So literally, you have a universe exploding out of nothing, which exactly. would match the Genesis account. Exactly. Well, the Big Bang theory should not be a threat to anyone to any believer in Christ, regardless of their view of the age of the earth. Is that correct? Whether you're an old earth creationist or a young earth creationist, really, you shouldn't oppose, or this is not a theory that really threatens your position, does it? Exactly. In fact, I think, you know, it's maybe important to also point out that the prevailing theory of the universe, the prevailing cosmological theory, prior to growing evidence for this Big Bang creation event was the steady state theory of the universe. And that comported with Carl Sagan's famous statement, the universe is all that is, all that ever was, and all that ever will be. And that was the idea that the universe had existed forever, you know, infinite time past. And that was much less conducive to, or I should say, much less in accord with the biblical account of, you know, the universe coming into existence. So if the universe always existed, then there was no need to explain its uh, creation or its beginning. And in fact, there are many, many scientists around uh, the 
Einstein's time that, who were not comfortable with this idea that the universe had a beginning because of the theological implications, the philosophical implications that if something had a beginning, then something had to cause that beginning, cause it to come into existence. So the, the Big Bang theory, the Big Bang model of the universe is much more God-friendly than the steady-state model, which was in wide acceptance before that. In fact, there were, there were jokes about, you know, in fact, Fred Hoyle was a, an atheist scientist, or at least we, you know, from, from most of his writings, we think he was an atheist. About the time that evidence for the Big Bang uh, model of the universe was becoming more and more prevalent, Sir Fred Hoyle made the comment that, you know, uh, jokingly that all these scientists were running off to join the first church of christ of the big bang <laughs> and <laughs> and you know he and many others were were pretty uncomfortable with the idea that the universe had a beginning for that very reason and um he also made the comment that when he discovered that the carbon atom had precisely the resonance resonance required to give rise to a life-friendly universe, his atheism was greatly shaken. I love that line. I mean, it, it just is one of many discoveries that points to how, you know, so many of these things within the universe have to be exactly what they are in order to get life anywhere. Leslie, there are some who oppose the Big Bang Theory uh, many point to the second law of ther thermodynamics, saying that things go from order to chaos. And okay. so in the Big Bang Theory, you got it going in the opposite direction, from chaos to order. Is that a valid or a good argument against the Big Bang? No, not really. I don't think so. You know, the, the evidence is pointing more and more strongly to a beginning of space-time, matter, and energy. And, you know, I mean, maybe it's unfortunate that been dubbed the Big Bang, but quite honestly, I mean, it, it was it was kind of Fred Hoyle's original joke of calling it the Big Bang, and the name just stuck, you know. <laughs> but I think, you know, it, it's basically saying, you know, that there was a beginning to all this. I mean, that's really what we should be taking away from the Big Bang theory or the Big Bang model of the universe is simply it says that there was a beginning to all this. And the second thought, law of thermodynamics does indeed say that things tend to go from order to disorder or order to chaos. And, you know, we actually, you know, expect to see that played out in the universe. And we do see it, you know, in the, in the life and death of stars, you know, in, you know, the various thermodynamic processes that are at play. And the thing is, you know, in terms of, I think, I think what you're referring to actually is, you know, the argument that's made that what you would see in terms of getting increasing complexity of life when runs or seems to run counter to the second law of thermodynamics. But the counter argument to that is actually that you, know, you really have to look at the whole system. And when we say the whole system here, we're really talking about the entire universe. And so if order is increasing in one place, then disorder must be increasing elsewhere to balance that off. And that's really what the second law of thermodynamics tells us. I see. Now, Leslie, 
you made a surprising comment here in your book. You, you said that virtually all astronomers and astrophysicists recognize the anthropic cosmological principle or the Goldilocks principle. That's quite surprising. Explain this principle to us. Well, okay, so it's basically the observation that there's a very long and growing list of universal parameters or numbers. Virtually everyone in the science community acknowledges this anthropic uh, principle or the Goldilocks principle or the fine-tuning principle, which basically says that there's a very large and growing number of universal parameters or numbers that have to be very finely tuned within a narrow range in order to get life anywhere in the universe. And um, if you change any one of those numbers by just a tiny amount, you destroy the possibility of a life-supporting universe. And, you know, depending on who you read on this topic, you'll get a list of, of these parameters, things like the strength of the universal gravitational constant, the electromagnetic weak and strong forces, the strong nuclear force speed of light, et cetera, et cetera, that have to be finely tuned within this very narrow range and change anything and the possibility of life goes away. So some people say that there are you know, dozens of these parameters. Others say there are hundreds. But in any case, a kind of a middle-of-the-road estimate of the odds of getting all these parameters just exactly right is somewhere on the order of about uh, one chance in 10 to the 280th power. And to wow. put that number into some perspective, there are only an estimated 10 to the 80th atoms in the entire universe. So the odds of picking just the one atom that you're looking for out of the entire universe, far-flung universe of stars and galaxies, are one chance in 10 to the 80th power. Well, this number that I just mentioned, even if you, let's just imagine that for every single atom in our universe, that you had another universe for each one of those atoms. You had a multiverse with 10 to the 80th universes in it. So if you then say, okay, what are the odds of picking just the right atom of out of all those universes, each of which have 10 to the 80th atoms in it, still those odds are still only one chance in 10 to the 160th power. So we're still not even close to the odds of getting all these parameters just exactly right. So I hope that gives you kind of an idea of how remote the odds are of getting everything just exactly right in our universe to get life. Um, and and in, uh, actually one of my uh, friends and colleagues at Reasons to Believe has further put those numbers in perspective. It's an analogy that I like to share as much as possible. And that's, that's that if, let's just say that one person buys a lottery ticket each time they play, and on that one lottery ticket, they win the lottery. You know, each time they buy a ticket, and let's say they play twice a week. So every time they buy just one ticket, they win on that one winning ticket twice a week, every week, for 50 years straight. Wow. Now, I'll use that analogy with my students in class, and I'll say, you know, let's just say you read a newspaper article or an article on, you know, on the web about this happening that, you know, says, you know, newsflash, this, you know, one really lucky guy, you know, wins the lottery twice a week, every week on just one winning ticket for 50 years in a row. 
you know, what would you, what would your reaction be? And inevitably they say, well, it must have been rigged. And I'll say, yeah, bingo, you know, you hit the nail on the head. The exact same thing could be said for our universe. Yeah, it's rigged for life. Yeah, you know, Leslie, building on that, we often hear about the probability of life on other planets. But you state mm -hmm. that the probability of life on other planets is highly unlikely. You know, and you stated some of the reasons why, but I mean, some may argue, well, there's so many millions of planets out there. There's mm -hmm. probably one that's like the Earth, but you say it's highly unlikely. Well, okay, so, okay, let me, let me take a step back, first of all. It's highly unlikely that even this planet would exist that, you know, supports life. So, so looking at those purely naturalistic odds that I just, you know, cited to you, it's very unlikely that we would get even one planet where life could exist in the universe. And so if we're just talking purely naturalistic parameters and characteristics that have to come together in one place in the universe, then yeah, the odds are extremely likely. Now you could say, well, it, yeah, okay, it is unlikely, but it happened once, it happened here. And so, so in the same way that I feel like, you know, God has, in a, in a sense, stacked the deck in this universe uh, to make life possible, um, you know, he certainly could have stacked the deck so that more than one planet would have life. I'm just saying from the standpoint of purely natural parameters that would have to come together and the odds of those parameters coming together in any one place, we've already bit, beat the odds. <laughs> I think the, the follow-on to that is that, you know, we've been listening out in space for radio signals from, from anywhere in the universe, any kind of an intelligent uh, radio transmission for, well, at least 50 years now or so. So we haven't received any signals that could be construed as intelligent or, you know, trying to communicate some sort of a message. And in effect, because of the fact that we've had the capability to listen for radio signals for at least 50 years, we can safely say that we have not received any intelligent transmissions from outer space for 50 years, and, and that would say, well, these, these signals travel at light speed, so that would say that we probably don't have any, at least advanced civilizations within 50 light years of this planet. Wow. Yeah. So to carry on with that, you know, it's not to say that there are not other intelligent civilizations out there. It's just to say that if there are, they're probably at a a pretty good distance from us, at least, you know, more than 50 light years away. And traveling those distances seems to be pretty uh, prohibitive, at least with the state of the art of our technology right now. Yeah, Leslie, one of the things you hear is that, well, what about UFOs? I mean, we have so many mm -hmm. UFO encounters. Doesn't that prove that there is perhaps extraterrestrial life out there? Well, and again, you know, I, I caution people to use that word prove pretty carefully, given what it means in, in science as well as um, other fields. 
Do we have enough evidence to say that the most likely explanation is that, you know, that intelligent life in other areas of the universe is the most reasonable explanation for the supposed UFO sightings that we've had? I'm not going to be the judge of that. <laughs> I'm not going to judge that one. <laughs> but, you know, I think my point is that, you know, I, I think that it's unlikely that there is life intelligent life in a technological uh, civilization close enough to us that they'd be both technologically advanced enough and close enough to be sending spacecraft our way. I'm not saying that there is not intelligent life out there. In fact, I kind of think it would be cool if there was. And in fact, I think to say that there's not is really putting God in a box that we're not smart enough to do. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, God being as creative as he is, and like I can say, I stand in more on wonder every time I discover something new about his creation through science. Yeah, uh, so, in, in that, so, yeah, so I'd be almost surprised if, if he didn't create some other intelligent life someplace else. Yeah, so Leslie, what are we to make of these UFO encounters or accounts of UFO encounters here? <laughs> Uh, that's a, a very good question. It's a very, very good question. I mean, you know, there, there are all kinds of possible explanations. It could be that they are, you know, I mean, I feel like this could be a whole separate conversation, um, <laughs> you know, possibly extra dimensional or cross dimensional beings. There could be possibly a spiritual element to them. I mean, Billy Graham actually wrote a very interesting book uh, a number of years ago called Angels, um, where he explores the possibility that some of the uh, the things that we have dubbed UFO sightings could actually be angels or spiritual beings. And I'm, you know, I, I'm very open to that explanation. You know, I mean, people always bring up the idea of wormholes, you know, and... and uh, yeah, from Star Trek, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea that, you know, beings in a more technologically advanced society than ours could be capable of sending spacecraft through wormholes from other parts of distant space. And, you know, I mean, right now at this stage of our scientific understanding and our technology that seems improbable but you know who's to say that somewhere down the road that problem of uh coming through a wormhole without being spaghettified <laughs> to quote homer simpson <laughs> i don't know if you ever saw that episode there was a there was a, <laughs> yeah. an episode of the simpsons that talked about uh travel through wormholes and how you know uh you have this spaghettification problem where the gravitational uh, forces would be so great uh, by, you know, having these two back-to-back -back black holes with massive gravity that whatever would pass through the wormhole would get, um, you know, again, the term, uh, the technical term is spaghettified, <laughs> but stretched out into these, you know, infinitely long um, uh, streams of material, and uh, you'd never be able to survive it. But you know, I mean, to say that we know that much is a little bit arrogant, I think. You know, I think that a number of decades ago, what we're learning even about dark matter, dark energy, quantum physics, and the like could have just been deemed as, you know, complete black magic, you know, a number of decades ago. So, 
you know, again, like I say, we have to practice humility both in science as well as on the theology side. Yeah, Leslie, would it be a threat to our faith if we did find some kind of life form on another planet far away? Well, I sure don't think so. I mean, you know, again, I feel like, you know, we we tend to, we humans have this tendency to, to want to think that we understand everything and, and, you know, including God. And I think it's just beyond arrogant for us to try to put God in a box and say, no, you know, we're the only uh, intelligent life that he could have ever created. We're the, you know, um, we understand what God would and wouldn't do. And, you know, I mean, one of the interesting one of my all-time favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, you know, and, and his space trilogy, you know, again, in his allegory style, talks about that question of, you know, what if, you know, God put intelligent life on other planets, you know, what would that mean for sinfulness and, and salvation and Christ's sacrifice and whatnot? And, and you know, I think it's really interesting to think about those things. And in one thing that I think is actually really relevant to this conversation is, you know, if we go back to the Greek and look at John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the word world in the original Greek was cosmos, for God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the cosmos so much that he sent Christ to die and reconcile. God's creation to himself. And I just think that's a beautiful picture, you know. And to me, it's like, you know, God so loved everything he created. And to use that word cosmos, you know, and in, in with its modern day uh, understanding of including the entire universe, I think that sheds new light on, you know, if there are, is life on other planets, then, you know, Christ's death was atonement for them as well. That's the way I look at it. Well, Leslie, you know, as we bring this uh, show to a close here, you know, speaking as a former NASA scientist and astronaut, what are some final words that you could give us as we conclude the, how Christians we should approach science and the scriptures? Well, don't be afraid of science. I, I really feel that the main message that I want to communicate, particularly to young people, is that science and faith are not in competition with each other. It's possible to be both a faithful Christian as well as a top-notch scientist. And in fact, I look at science as the tool that we can use to explore the wonders of God's creation and even be used as a a cause for worship. As I've said before, you know, the things that I discover about God's creation through science make my awe and wonder at the Creator even greater and inspire all the more awe and worship. Great. You've been listening to our interview with former NASA scientist and astronaut, Dr. Leslie Wickman. Dr. Wickman now serves as the executive director of the American Scientific Affiliation, and she's the author of a great book here. We'd like to encourage you to get God of the Big Bang. Well, Leslie, if people want more information on you or even websites that you would recommend for further research in understanding the relationship of faith and science, where can they go for more information? Right. So I'd like to give you the website of the American Scientific Affiliation. That's ASA3.org, ASA the numeral 3 
www.scienceinsights.org. And there are lots and lots of resources there on topics in science and faith. We're just about ready to actually embark on a, a nationwide tour visiting with people in various geographic locations who might be interested in starting their own local chapters of the American Scientific Affiliation. So if there are people out there who might be interested in starting a local group to further the dialogue between science and faith, please get in touch with us at that uh, website, asa3.org. Outstanding. This has been our interview with Dr. Leslie Wickman, former NASA scientist and astronaut and author of this great book, God of the Big Bang. So, Leslie, thank you for being on the show here at Evidence and Answers. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Pat. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.